Welcome to another episode of Deviant Women. The podcast where we talk about women from history, literature, mythology, and contemporaneity. Just jumped in there because you paused like you forgot. (laughs) I had had a moment of complete blank there. Anyway, I'm Alyssia. And I'm Lauren. And we're here to take you through another episode. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Again, we are delving back into history once again today. But first, before we do, it's... Announcement time! It's... It's announcement! (laughs) See how we put a little jingle there? See how we did that? We pre-recorded that. We pre-recorded that jingle. I don't know if you can tell everyone. Did that. First take. No rehearsals. (laughs) No, zero rehearsal. (laughs) I don't know if it's obvious that there was zero rehearsal there. There you go. But uh, we did, in our last episode, promise an announcement theme song because we keep having announcements. And we have another one this week. We do. And it is, if you remember from our last episode, we announced a competition and we're extending said competition. competition. So if you write us a review on iTunes... And get that into us before Sunday, the 17th of September on iTunes. You will go in the draw to win some fabulous merchandise. Hooray! Wonderful prizes. So it's not a difficult thing to do. It's so like, hooray, wonderful prizes. They are wonderful prizes. I'm trying to be, you know what? I'm trying to be as enthusiastic as possible. But Lauren, you know as well as I do, I had a tooth extracted. You had a tooth extracted. That is true. And it is difficult to do anything. To feel good about life. To feel good about anything when one has had a tooth extracted. You have a hole in yourself. So I had a baby tooth. It was in there for Which many years too long. a really long. weird thing to still have a baby tooth. I still in, have another well one. Well into your adult life. Yeah, I know. I've still got another baby tooth left in my mouth. Is that going to come out? Yeah. Well, today this one started to hurt. And I think <laughs> it's because, you know. It's how, like my twin. Exactly. Like, you know how sometimes oh, no. couples, like yeah. when one of the members of the couple passes away, the other member of the couple like. Just dies. Just dies quite soon afterwards. Well, I think my other baby tooth may be doing that. That's that's a terrible... It's lamenting the loss of my other baby tooth. That's awful. So I'm going to try... I'm going to try real hard. I'm going to try real hard for you today, but, (laughs) you know. All right. I will attempt to overcome the fatigue that I have from my cold. Yeah. And we're going to smash this one. We're going to smash it. It's going to be so good. Let's not complain about our health any longer. No, we're good. Let's just do it. All right. So where are we going to be today? Well, today we're coming home to Australia. We're coming home. We're coming home. I'm coming home. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're trying to do some kind of Rocky Horror thing. Are we trying to do a Rocky Horror thing? I'm coming home. Yeah. That's correct. That's what we were doing. We are in Australia. We're going to begin in Portland, Victoria, but we're not going to stay there not forever. Portland, Oregon. No, we are beginning our time in Portland, Victoria. And I'm going to say, I'm just going to be a little bit political here for a moment, if I may, Alicia, Go if for I'm it. allowed. Why not? Because today's choice of Deviant Woman was inspired by some political goings-ons in our, uh-huh. in our contemporary 
homeland of Australia. Current political climate. Pi- that's correct. And um, by the way, I know I know the words climate. <laughs> Just wanted to say it in a fancy way. For those of you who aren't in Australia, you may or may not be aware that Australia is currently undergoing a very arbitrary and bizarre postal <laughs> plebiscite to determine whether or not, in fact, a majority of Australians believe in equal marriage. And it's a very silly, arbitrary postal plebiscite because it was originally supposed to be like a referendum, but it's not actually a constitutional issue. So referendums are not a requirement in this case. In fact, it's something that could be passed very simply. Pretty easily. In a very short period of time. Mm, but nobody wants to be responsible for that. But they're just not fucking doing it. Yeah, like, that's right. It could just be passed right. It could be passed tomorrow. We could just have marriage equality right like now. Tomorrow. Well, not right now because they're not in chambers right now. That's but true. like it tomorrow. Is, it is night time. At it the is moment. evening time. But yeah. tomorrow, they could make it happen if they wanted they to. They could. But, but no. No. Why don't, why not instead? Why don't we waste our time? Having an expensive and pointless and voluntary postal vote. Yeah, which is potentially extraordinarily damaging to the psychological mental well-being of a lot of LGBTQI Australians. And that's really what I'm particularly worried about. Anyway, so my point is today I felt like I wanted to delve into some of Australia's LGBTQI history and present... A deviant woman by the name of Agnes Goodsir. Ooh. Oh, that's a great name! It is, Agnes Goodsir. Goodsir! Good yes, good old Agnes Goodsir. She was born, like I said before, in Portland, Victoria, on the 18th of June, 1864. Quite a long time ago. Alicia. Indeed. In fact, that was before Australia was a federated nation. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> it's like you didn't know that. I know, but I'm just trying to... You're just reacting to me. I'm reacting to you. That's my job. My job is to react (laughs) to the information you give me. She was the second daughter and fifth child of the 11 children born to David James Cook Goodsir, the Commissioner of Customs in Melbourne. 11 children. Well, it was 1864. You've got to have a lot. So not unusual, really. Hedge your bets. Yeah. And Elizabeth Archer. That's her mother. Soon after her birth, the family moved to Melbourne, settling in Brunswick, of course, because where else does one grow up as a burgeoning young artist? Other than than Brunswick. Brunswick, which I don't know if... Was in 18... Dickety four, would Brunswick have been the same melting pot of bohemian creativity that it is today? I imagine that she spent most of the 90s eating avocado toast and drinking flat whites. I also spent most of the 90s eating avocado toast and drinking flat whites. Not I much, didn't. That's a lie. Not much has changed. Not much has well, changed. Well, that's what I... My 90s are about 100 years later. But that's, <laughs> that's also okay. That's my normal yeah. Sunday. So she moved to Brunswick. Yeah. And they were a really affluent and well-connected family. So she had a pretty comfortable and actually relatively progressive upper middle class life. And the upper middle class part's important because... Agnes went on to become an artist and in Mm. order to become an artist at this time as a woman, having an affluent upper middle class family is basically a prerequisite. It's pretty handy. Really important. They lived in a house called Lindhurst Lodge, which was apparently quote unquote imported and erected in Brunswick. What the house was imported? The house was imported. Now I don't, so it could mean one of two things. Yep. It could mean that they... Just imported all of the 
elements that made up the house and then built it mm, okay. rather than using local materials. So that would be really expensive. The other alternative that that could mean is that they dismantled a house in England, brought it over and rebuilt it. There's that show. Have you ever seen that show? I don't know what it's called, but there is some show. Grand Designs? No, no not Grand <laughs> Designs with Kevin MacLeod. No, there, that's great. That is a great show. Highly recommended. There's another show which might be called like Mega Moves or something like that. I'm probably making that up, but then again, it's probably, it's probably also a real show. what it's called. And it's specifically about the logistics of moving people's houses from one place to really? another. And like I've never heard of that. But kind of picking them up, putting them on a you trailer can, you can and moving them. do that. Them. That's like when they... You can do it. Yes, you can move an entire house if need be, but maybe in 18 dickety two. I keep, I've forgotten the year already. It was 1864 when she was born, so she's a youth she's in a, the 1880s, 80s, yeah. 90s. Maybe moving an entire house might be slightly more difficult. Yes. But really all that's important is that the family has a lot of money and she's very well off. And like any affluent upper middle class girl child of the late Victorian era, she spent her childhood studying, obviously, the typical subjects we see many of our Victorian deviant women studying, including French and drawing and drawing French girls, etc. <laughs> Very formative period yes. yeah. during French girls. Yeah. In 1898, she moved to Bendigo to study at the Bendigo School of Mines under the tutelage of Arthur T. Woodward. These people have great names. Yeah. Something I'd like to point out. So for anyone who's unaware of Australian geography, so Melbourne at this point in time, already quite an established mm. sort of big city, Cosmopolitan centre, Bendigo's not so much. regional, rural. It's really, yeah, it's in the middle of the state. Yeah. It's not near the coast or anything. And it was also became mostly populated because of the gold rush. Right. And when you have a gold rush, a couple of things happen. They do. Lots of things happen. Certain groups of the population become quite wealthy. Yes, indeed they do. And it also attracts people from all walks of life and from all over the world. Which means it attracts people of many different races and colours and ethnicities and religions. And when you're of particular groups who've been there for longer than other groups, you tend to see a rise in racism and discrimination and things are maybe not so great for some of these other groups. You don't say. <laughs> so... She has come from Melbourne, has moved to Bendigo. It's a much smaller town, as yeah. you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly no cosmopolitan Melbourne. So there's a lot of intolerance and racism and people were kind of generally a lot less liberal and more conservative. So it's kind of interesting that there's this, this centre of art there. The Bendigo School was actually really influential. And Woodward, who studied himself in Europe, he was English, he attracted a whole bunch of other affluent young would-be artists. Yeah, right. And so mm -hmm. there's this kind of really strange, interesting little art scene happening in Bendigo, which is otherwise kind of a, you know, quite conservative mining town. So that's an interesting... In the middle um, of a gold rush. Yeah, well, they're at the end of the gold yeah, rush. Yeah, I should say, it's not really the gold, gold rush. The gold rush was the mid-19th century. Mm. This is a couple of decades later. But there still would have been... It's not completely dead yet. There's, there's still all those carry-on social kinds of things going on so she discovers that she's got a bit of a talent likes this art stuff 
Maybe to her. Might be the thing that she most wants to do in all the world. But also in 1889, she's in her mid-30s. So she's no, like, petit ingenue here. She is – I don't know what she spent her 20s doing. Yeah, what did doing. she spend her youth doing? I don't know. Eating – I thought we already said – we covered this. She was eating avocado toast in Brunswick. All right. That's her whole 20s. I really don't know. I think that's how most 20-year-olds today spend their 20s as well. Yeah. I eat avocado toast literally every weekend yeah. so and no. drink lattes yep. literally every weekend. That's and why I you am, can't afford I'm to buy a I'm an Australian house. person in her yeah. 20s, not for much longer. But yeah. That's why I don't own a house. That's why you can't afford to buy one, Lauren. Yeah. Well, luckily for... Only have yourself to blame and, and, you sm- and, smash, and smashed avocado. Luckily for Agnes, her father was actually really supportive of her of art. smashed avocado. Yeah, and her association in the art world. He f- helped finance her. So she decided that, yes, art is for her. She wants to move to Paris. Who Paris. doesn't? Who doesn't want to move to I Paris? I mean, let's be honest. She might be distanced by 100 years in time from her Brunswick contemporaries. But she's not really that different. Basically the same, <laughs> she's the same person. person. Um, so she wants to go to Paris. And her dad helps to finance the move. And she also <laughs> has... She's, she's still relying on her parents. Well, she is. She's exactly the she's same. She's a millennial. She's, she's a, a millennial. <laughs> Living uh, off dad's money. Woodward, her art tutor, he also thinks that she's got the goods. And he's, I think, very influential in her decision to go to Paris as well. So with his support, she holds an art union of her work so that they can raise some more funds to get her over to Paris. So All right, so she basically fundraises off some of her paintings. Yeah, so she's basically gets a GoFundMe <laughs> account. Or a Kickstarter. A Kickstarter and her dad's money yep. combined. Uh-huh. And this gets her off to Paris. So her dad also gives her an annual stipend of £100 a year, which is great. Yeah, handy. Thanks, Dad. Yes. And it, look... To be, oh, we're making fun of her a little bit here, but let's just be real about this. As a woman in the 1890s in Australia, there's no other way that you can become an artist if you don't have the financial support of your family, which is necessary in order to be an independent woman mm. as well. So not just to, to pursue a life of art, but she's in her mid-30s and she's never married. So she doesn't have a husband. She has the freedom of time allotted to independent women but that does mean that she doesn't have an independent income because you just don't at this time as a woman but what about like the art scene around her so you've talked about the school that she's at obviously there is going to be some kind of support maybe Mm. from her contemporaries and peers what is the actual art scene in australia like so yeah at this period obviously men dominate yeah they always have they had particularly in Australia. This was the period where women were starting to legitimately enter into the art world as professionals. This came about because of, well, one of the factors that may have led to this rise is the arts and craft movement. Uh, Of course. Which came over from Britain into Australia in like the 1860s. And this, I guess, because it kind of privileged like decorative home arts Mm. And that kind of thing, it was taken up primarily and enthusiastically by women. So that 
allowed women to start to kind of enter the field and then many art societies became established so in Tasmania in like 1903 and New South Wales 1906 and Victoria in 1908 so these are a little bit after Agnes's time but still you know basically same social period because before this there was a lot of I guess barriers for women like they weren't allowed to study nude models because you know like that's so inappropriate you can't you know and that's such an I mean I'm not an artist but like that's such an a pivotal element of like learning the human form right like studying nude models and also men were the ones who controlled things like exhibitions and juries for prizes so even if they did practice art a lot of them just were not given space to exhibit or to be taken seriously and so yeah it was the arts and craft movement that started to give women an entry into the field and this also led to the rise of like women's arts magazines and so a lot of these magazines kind of started to produce so they needed not only I guess the commercial images to put in these magazines But these magazines also started to curate this idea of the modern Australian woman as being someone who was interested in decor and decorative arts and craft and things like that. So this idea of the modern woman will be something we return to in this story. Oh, yeah, it's really important because this is also around the time of suffrage as well. So that's another one that's like hugely (laughs) – another hugely important idea. Yeah, and also women then became – the ones who were also the the largest consumers of art. So women frequented art galleries more commonly than men. Apparently it's like three women for every one man would attend galleries and exhibitions. And I guess that one's making the choices for what goes into the home. That's right. Exactly. And here's the one that I really like. So this comes a little bit later, but it was Australian female artists who were really more responsible for introducing modernism into Mm -hmm. Australian art. So the the male artists were generally more conservative. They stuck to like impressionism and pastoral kinds of scenes. Uh, There are a few artists such as Dorrit Black, who you would know, but um, a lot of our listeners probably don't. She's uh, one of our local artists. Hooray! Grace Crowley and Anne Danger. I hope I'm saying that right. It might be Danger, but it's spelled with an A. So So we're going to go with Danger. Danger. I can't say that. I know her. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe we could look into her for for a future episode. But these were the first women to dabble in cubism, and they did so before men. But this change isn't really reflected in Australian galleries. They didn't really start collecting women until a little bit later. Not properly anyway. Like a lot of female artists, you don't actually get famous till after you're dead. That's right. Yes. Nobody cares about you. Till you die. Yeah, unfortunately. So, yeah, for someone like dear old Agnes, she was in a good position to be able to enter the scene. And so she moves off to Paris in 1899. What a time. What a time. Oh, my God. Imagine that. The Belle Epoque. Can we just. The Belle Epoque. Why? I mean, she's one of like literally dozens of Australian artists who were fl- – they were just flooding. Yeah. Flocking Everybody to Paris. was. It wasn't just Australians. No. Everyone was a lot of Americans as well. And this is the Belle Epoque. So this is actually even before 
the main influx of artists to Paris in the 20s. We're going to get to the 20s soon because that's a really important era for Agnes. But she arrives in 1899, which is still an amazing time to be in Paris. On the cusp of the new century. That's right. We just um, imagine. To never gonna party like it's 1899. (laughs) It's interesting that you went there because I was thinking of Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge. Ugh. I know. You know how I feel about I that film. I know how film. you feel about that film. I, meanwhile, feel very differently about that film. But that's, we can, I, that's fine. I first saw it when I was 13. So We're allowed to have like different ideas about mind that Mind-blowing. She started studying at the Académie de la Cluse under Raphael Colombe and then the Académie de la Grande Chaumière under Lucien Simon. You had um, real fun saying all of those words. Yeah, I probably said it really bad, but I really did enjoy it. So she gets her first taste of Paris. It's not quite the the decadent post-war Paris that we're kind of alluding to yet. But like well, I said... No, because there's been no war yet. No, that's right. So, hey. Ooh, yeah. yeah. So it's still, yeah, pretty Belle Epoque Paris. And travelling unaccompanied at this point is even if you are a woman yeah, in your mid-30s. So she, so she went there unaccompanied. Yes, she right. did. Really unusual. You normally and have your escort. You've got right. a chaperone. And this is why – so the Australian expat artist is actually really not unusual, but it is unusual for women. Mm. So a lot of men had made this journey, but being a woman, travelling alone, unaccompanied, totally not – normal because it already is beginning to subvert that kind of economic dependency on patriarchy okay so she's traveling with her daddy's stipend so still a bit of patriarchy there in the pocket still a little bit of that but it's still really unusual it was seen as being really kind of challenging and and quite forward behavior like this is provocative behavior yeah yeah it's not demure it's not yeah it's kind of not polite society yeah but We can probably safely assume that she was obviously drawn to Paris because of the culture and the art scene. She wanted to study with the masters. She wanted to go to the Louvre and be exposed to all of that art that in Australia in the 1890s... Didn't exist, wasn't it? Yeah, it's not like you can just go online and look up. (laughs) Like She couldn't? Well, why couldn't she do that while she was taking her Kickstarter? (laughs) Well, maybe she should have used her time more effectively. But yeah, so my point really is Australia is really quite isolated at this time, so it's no surprise. But she didn't speak French, except for, I suppose, the little bits of high school French that she had. She also didn't really have any contacts in Paris. And so London would have been the more logical choice, but she chose Paris. And while we don't really have any hard evidence about this, it has been suggested that part of the draw to Paris specifically, rather than London, may have had to do with the fact that Paris was... During the Belle Epoque, not my words, but I wish they were, lesbian mecca. Ooh. Yeah. So Lesbian Mecca. <laughs> lesbian Mecca. So she is in her mid-30s. She is yeah. unmarried. So we, we haven't really talked about, because I assume that we don't really have the information to fill in these blanks, but as you say, she's unmarried. So clearly she has been a lesbian for quite some time. Well, we can only assume because she was closeted. Particularly, yeah. so we like, don't have any stories about any lovers she might have until, had prior. Not to... until she gets to Paris. Mm. No, before that, she if she had affairs, she was very discreet. There's no information about anything happening prior to Paris. Yeah. 
But she is in her mid thirties. It's yeah. not like this just comes out of nowhere. No, no, no. And she's so, going to lesbian mecca. Yeah, that's right. With a purpose. So <laughs> this is the thing. It's like I think that we can say that she's probably not ignorant to or naive of Paris's kind of reputation. And even if it's not even the lesbian draw, like just knowing that Paris is so much more progressive that, yeah. and liberal than Bendigo. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I like the way you said that, then. Bendigo. And that is, she's not even in Melbourne where she could maybe. Like, sorry if you live in Bendigo. Sorry. Bendigo's a great town. I've been to Bendigo multiple times, but yeah, not I'm, in the 1890s. But I'm just, you know, yeah. I, contextually, Bendigo yeah. in the 1890s versus Compared to Paris. Paris. Yeah. I know where I would prefer to be. Bendigo. <laughs> yes. Obviously. It's where all the gold is. That's where the gold is, man. And all the men. Yeah. Ooh, exactly. all those dirty miners. <laughs> anyway. Dirty miners. Sorry, so, dirty miners. But it would have been, like, quite a culture shock. Paris had a population of, like, 2.75 million people. Holy crap. So she moved to Montparnasse, which was quickly becoming the new Montmartre. And uh-huh. Is that left bank? Yeah, yes, left bank. that's left bank. So this is now becoming the center of particularly the modernist scene. Yeah. And so she started exhibiting, she was a portrait painter primarily, and she started exhibiting at the Société des Artistes Français in 1902 and 1903, and at the Société Nationale des Beaux-Arts, I apologize for my terrible French. You're supposed to be the French no, terrible person. She studied it yeah. like 15 years ago in okay, high school. Sure. And so this was a really important turning point in her career. The Paris salons were really, really important for new artists. They, is that the same as like the ateliers? Or yes. Is that, is that yes. like the workshops of yeah. the – Yeah, all right. Good. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the ateliers, they're workshops – this is where you meet other artists. This is where you get media coverage. Yeah. You go kind of go under the wing of somebody who's already established. Yeah, and that's well-known. right. Yeah. And you get to network and like meet all of the other people. But so not just meet other artists, but also meet other patrons. Mm. Not other patrons, but patrons. Yeah, so. and I also imagine that at, by this point now, as a lady, you're also allowed to draw nude ladies yeah <laughs> yeah at the ateliers you may be able to go to a nude workshop exactly yes. yeah yes mm-hmm. just yes but this is how you like made it on the scene you could become quite well known if you interacted in the right circles in the salons and the ateliers and this is exactly what she did she took advantage of it she used the salons to promote herself and her work and this launched her career properly and saw her start to really assimilate herself into the Parisian art scene. Her first portraits were a little bit more conservative. So she always had a little bit of a conservative style, impressionistic style rather than more like of the modernist modernist style. style. But her subject matter was always, and the themes of her work were always more avant-garde and more modernist but at this point she's only just sort of starting to play around with some of those ideas this is all art talk that is only going to be meaningful to a fraction of people but her first portraits are more in the Barbizon and the Dutch schools so a little bit more solemn peasanty type subjects formal interiors subdued tones that kind of thing so she's just starting to break out she's at the breakout of her career she's 40 years old it's 1906 her father dies Oh, no. And with it comes the end of her stipend Uh, because her stepmother. Uh Uh-oh. What happened to her other mother? Her step... I I don't know. Oh, well, forget her. Her other mother. 
gone. Evil stepmother. Evil stepmother is in. Yes. And she's like, no, you avocado toast eating <laughs> millennial lesbian. lesbian artist living off your daddy's money in Paris. No more of this. No. And she cuts her off. Oh. No more £100 a year for dear old Agnes, which sucks because how's a girl going to make a living in Paris? And so she comes home. Oh, so she comes back. She has to come home. She comes home for six months. To live with evil stepmother? Well, it's only for six months. I Can I also know. just say that we're laughing about the evil stepmother trope? We, like, but we it's love just, there's, it's, not, there's nothing wrong with stepmothers. We're just playing on this trope. Playing on the it's trope. Just a stereotype. Yeah. Stepmothers are great. Yeah. I don't really know what she did while she was back in Australia. Probably was just like, you don't understand me. <laughs> I'm an artist. <laughs> Started dyed her hair black. Why does she sound like she's 16? She's, <laughs> she's 40. 40 years old. <laughs> her stepmother's probably like, you haven't given me any step grandbabies. That's all right. No, she's got like 10 other children. I'm sure she's fine. So she's back in Australia for six months. This In um, Bendigo? I think Melbourne because oh, okay. her family are in Melbourne. She went to Bendigo for the art school. Yeah. So after her brief sojourn back home in Australia, she decides to return to Europe again in 1906. And this is where things get a little bit more fun. So again, let's remember, she's 42 at this point, hardly an ingenue. But this time she decides she's not going to go back to Paddy. She's going to go to London. And this is, this is really an economical choice. Yeah, I was going to say, how is she going to afford to do this? Well, I'll tell you how, Alicia. Yeah, please do. Because even though Australia is now a federated nation... It's happened. ...the Australian citizens still remained British subjects, Mm -hmm. which means you're able to work without restriction. So basically, she could get a working visa. Mm -hmm. So that's... She can also vote now. Yes, she could. If she she chose to, she could vote at this stage. Not in England, though. Only in Australia. in South Australia. In South Australia, she had the vote, but nowhere else. Nowhere else. So we were first? Yeah, we were first. Yeah. Anyway. That was a segue. (laughs) So basically, it's because she can get a working visa. And so she moves to St. John's Wood, which was a little bit of an artistic district. And she lives the life of art for a few years. I imagine that she's in lofts, penniless. She did. I mean, she's commissioning work. Living the dream. She's earning enough to get by. But and this would be through like private sales of her art. Yeah, that's right. So she is actually making an income as an mm. artist. So she's proven that she can do it, which is good, because then old stepmother dies and whammo, she gets her inheritance. Woohoo! Woo! So Fuck now- you, ten siblings! Yeah, yeah, so now she is able to actually become economically independent again. So I think like that that brief period is probably important in just establishing the fact that Hey, I could make it on my own if I wanted to, mm. and I did, and now I don't need to anymore. Yeah. Phew, thank God. <laughs> uh, it could be done, but I'm not going to So she starts to now travel more frequently between Paris and London exhibiting. And so I guess that's the important thing that that money did. It allowed her that little bit of extra freedom so she can start to travel between the two cities. She started exhibiting with the Clifton Arts Club, which were a modernist group, who included Vanessa Bell, who was, of course, Virginia Woolf's sister and other member of the Bloomsbury group. The way you said all of those things (laughs) was just so... I was doing my like, oh, look at all the art things I know. (laughs) Look at all the names I'm I'm dropping. I'm dropping all the art names. words I can say. (laughs) The Bloomsbury group, yes, of course I know all of them. Yes, I know. Quite intimately. Yes, I'm very good friends with them all. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> so anyway, this means that her, her art is starting to take on more of these modernist elements. And so this is the beginning of where some of her, I, I guess, more personal politics began to become more prominent in her art. So like I said, her actual style remained a little bit more impressionistic and conservative, but her subjects were like the themes of her work. She focused on female subjects mm-hmm. and a kind of really private womanhood. So we started to see her playing with the female gaze on female subjects and the interior lives of women. And that's really important. And it's obviously reflecting a lot of the kind of social conditions of the time. Like we've already kind of mentioned, there's the suffrage movement going on. We're starting to enter into the just pre-war and World War I era. So the new woman is not quite... Not quite a thing yet, but but this whole idea of women's independence is starting to rise, equal opportunity. And so she's portraying women who aren't – they're not typical wives and mothers kinds mm. of women. She's portraying women who are independent female subjects. Yeah. I say subjects and not objects. Yeah. You know, this is really important. It's also in London at this time, beginning of World War One, that she becomes close friends with – a man named Bernard Rolvnik. I love the way you say these names. You just like you just take him to the next <laughs> I'm level. Bernard. Bernard Rolvnik and his American wife Rachel. Hey, Rachel. I know where this is going. Oh yes, this is where things get a little bit more interesting. Hey. Her friendship with Bernard, not so important. Our real interest here, and Agnes's, <laughs> is Rachel. Why did we go? <laughs> well, we're sniggering because we're in the know. Because this is Rachel Dunn, who took on her maiden name again, Dunn, after she divorced old mate Bernard and became Agnes's model mm-hmm. and muse. Mm. And uh, I'm Com- going to assume... Canyon. Lover. And lover. Mm. Yes. I was wondering when we were going to get yes. some aspects of her actual... Like personal yeah. sexual life going here. Well, she sh- went. She left to go to, to lesbian Mecca, and as I know, we've had, we've had no well, lesbian we, Mecca. We, we really don't know. She may have been having the best time ever <laughs> in lesbian Mecca, but did it very discreetly. Yeah, discreet best um, time ever. Or maybe those conservative Australian values were so ingrained and entrenched in her that she was just an observer on this scene for a really long Mm. time. Maybe she didn't actually enact any of her Mm. sexual desires until she was in her 40s. And so when she meets Rachel, when her and Rachel do become companions, lovers, Mm. because obviously Rachel's left her husband and we're going to assume that's partly because of her new relationship with Agnes. Nothing explicitly states that their relationship was the reason that she left. But I read a couple of different sources and they all said it was Rachel who divorced Bernard. Mm. So it seems like it suggests that it that's It might be the case. And then, so when they begin their relationship, is their relationship an openly known no, relationship? Not, or not it, in London. No. Not right. in London. Mm-hmm. So they were in London for a few years during the war and they, were, they lived in the inner city. So... There's bombings yeah. and it was apparently quite traumatic as well as one can one imagine. imagine. Yep. And so this kind of took its toll on Agnes and she used to escape to the seaside when she could. But ultimately they decide they're going to move to Paris. So they go 
after the end of the war, they both moved together to Paris. So this is, I suppose, when they actually, they're still not out. They were never out. Agnes always remained very discreet and private about her Mm -hmm. sexuality and her private life. But in Paris, they were known to be lovers. And of course, so this is this period of time now that we're coming to. This is the period of time of people like Gertrude Stein. Exactly. So it's a completely different kind of Paris. Paris. This is interwar Paris. This is the best Paris of all of the Parises. I know. And we find ourselves here again. We've been into interwar Paris a couple of times and we're back again. But the reason why we're back is because Paris attracted all of these people who didn't fit in anywhere else. Yeah. You know, Paris was so much more liberal and so much more fun. This was where the party was at. And this is also, I mean, as we've touched on before, in when we've been to this period of history before, it's because it was the end of what everybody thought was the war to end all wars. Yeah, Everyone that's right. was like, right, that was horrific and it will never... Let's it, never that, do that again, that, everyone. That could never possibly happen let's again. Let's party so and love each other. Let's just live life because yeah. n- things will never be like... We'd, we'll never make a dumb mistake like that war again. Never. So wrong. But exactly, that's it. That's the attitude. It's this, oh, what is it, laissez-faire? Yeah, laissez-faire. Laissez-faire attitude. It was a party scene. It was a bloody good time. A bloody good time. If I could. A bloody good time. A bloody good time. It was great. A really good time in Paris. <laughs> That's what she does when she goes back home to Bendigo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Arnie May. It was a bloody good time. Yeah, a bloody good time. Yeah. I didn't run around with no Sheila's, though. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> sorry, everyone. So sorry. That's gotten out of control. Let's stop doing that. All right, let's get back into it. So, I mean, this is where there's a lot of parties, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's absinthe and cocaine and opium. Is she still a millennial? She yeah. Might be, <laughs> yeah. She might be in her 40s, but she's still a millennial. That's right. At heart. Everybody was drawn here. Dozens of Australians flocked to Paris, as well as tons of Americans boatloads of Americans, so many Americans. The Latin Quarter was basically American. And they all went seeking out this culture, the booze, the drugs, the good times. Mm. And another part that made this a really good place to come was the fact that it was post-World War I, the French Frank nosedive. So it was also very affordable to live in Paris. So, yeah, basically, pretty good time. Lesbian Mecca. Very large and very famous lesbian community in Paris. And it was it had an international reputation as the capital of same-sex love, really. Yeah. Like, this was a really fantastic place to be. It was a wonderful community and women were drawn there. They were drawn there for their shared love of art. They were drawn there for their love of intellectualism, which was kind of an area barred to them. In so many other places, they were taken seriously as intellects. They could converse together. They could meet and they could share ideas. They could share their art Mm. and they could share their love. And I mean that in the most positive, amazing way. I think it sounds wonderful. I think it would be amazing to have been there at this period. You are sounding very midnight in Paris at this stage. It's so (laughs) like I know that that whole film is a bit of a like, how much do we romanticize this period of history? But it's true. If I could go anywhere in time. Oh, would you now? Oh, it's up there. It's, it's very high on my list. Compared to 
London, which is definitely a lot more stuffy and conservative. Paris is much, much freer for Agnes and Rachel to really kind of immerse themselves in this scene, both as artists and lovers. Yeah. How old was Rachel? Rachel was 21 years younger Ooh, than Agnes. a bit of an age difference. Yeah. yeah. So, and she was... So, Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen is Ooh, appropriate. Ooh, yuck. Sorry. Let's also <laughs> go there. She was from a small town in Philadelphia, so they both kind of had that small town conservative upbringing they both kind of fled to much more liberal europe and in contrast to agnes she was like quite thin and stylish very feminine she had the cropped new woman bobbed hair like high cheekbones great as a model she was very like bohemian and elegant where agnes i I heard her described as being stout Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, at least she's not Westphalian hand. No, that's true. Because we've had that before. <laughs> so, sorry. But, and, I, but actually, that's interesting that you should say that because I have looked at, obviously, because we've been talking about Agnes, yeah. I've looked at a lot of her paintings because I was not familiar with her until you yeah. mentioned her to me. But those paintings from the era do really reflect that new woman because yeah. it is, yeah. even though the, the figures in the portrait she paints um, might be, you know, in dresses and skirts and whatever, like very clearly feminine subjects. They're also, they have that cropped hair. Yeah. They've got that short, very fashionable hair for the time. They've got the sort of the smoky eyes. They're often, they're smoking yeah, or they're definitely. drinking. This, yeah. So it's really suggestive and they're boldly looking at the viewer. They're so confident. And, yeah, this it's is a different thing. kind Her of woman. Gay, like, so Rachel... She went by the nickname Cherry. That was the name that she's known by in this scene. And she was Agnes's model primarily in this period. And so Agnes became famous for her, um, they're called Portraits Interieur and her Portraits of the New Woman. So Mm. absolutely, this is that female subject with a female gaze. Yep. And it is not just that playing on femininity. So she often had her subjects, well, Cherry, surrounded by like soft furnishing, soft tones and colours in moments of intimacy. Yep. So at the dressing table, in the bedroom. Yeah, because um, I'm taking it that the, basically the translation of what you just said is like interior scenes. Yeah, basically. yeah, that's right. Interior yep. portraits. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. So her work kind of like plays with the sexuality associated with these spaces and the objectification of women in these spaces, but reclaims them, totally reclaims them. And so not just reclaiming women as subjects, but also these spaces. Yeah, these feminine spaces. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So she kind of returns the gaze. Mm. You know, this is a female on female gaze and she celebrates like everyday femininity. So the textures and the patterns in these interior scenes and just those kind of everyday rituals of makeup and hair. And while that part of it's kind of very feminine, she also became very famous for her androgynous subjects. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of that new woman androgyny, like you said, of the smoky eyes, the short hair, the cigarettes, Mm -hmm. those confident gazes, really evoking the notion of independence. Yeah. And at a complete opposite to that shy, coy, you know, the kind of art that had come before where your female subjects are very reserved and all of that sort of 
power or confidence that that might come through is almost accidental. Yeah. It, yeah. It's almost like it's slipping through by accident or it's sort of like a it's a it's a cheeky kind of wink to suggesting yeah. that it might be there. Because but it, here it's the key part. Yeah, of that. because it's about a female experience of sexuality. Yeah. It's a woman's gaze, a woman's pleasure in looking and a woman's pleasure in being looked at by a woman. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so we have this between Agnes and Cherry. We also have the artist and muse like dynamic as well. Yeah. But again, that's being subverted. Instead of having the old male artist, the young, pretty muse, we've got two women. One of them is still older. Yeah. And one of them is still younger and prettier. But it totally changes the dynamic. And another thing is before this period, I guess the depictions of female homosexual love were far rarer than depictions of male homosexual love. Yeah, this is something that I also am very fascinated by as well, is the fact that also the depictions of female homosexual love are very much constructed for the male gaze. Yeah. This is still how this functions in society yeah, today, definitely. is that so yeah. often the depictions of lesbianism that we get, yeah. and they're not, they're not for, for the lesbians. lesbians. They're solely so, they're for the male, they're yep. still for the male gaze. Yep. And it drives me yep. fucking yep. Absolutely. insane. It's, yeah, there's something about these portraits that's so inherently sensual that really, I don't know, it kind of feels like, I'm sure that an equivalent exists now. It has to. But there's something about it that's so beautiful and so amazing and lovely. And they're just gorgeous, stunning portraits. And you can see the sexual energy present in the portraits without them feeling overtly sexualized. They don't feel like they're objectifying at all. Cherry is a beautiful, sensual subject. And they're really wonderful. And I, I suggest, of course, I always suggest that people look up these things when we're like doing this podcast, but like definitely have a look because, well, I guess the other thing is that this period in the twenties, there's a little bit of female homosexual love or lesbian stories starting to come out like Radcliffe Hall's yeah. Well of Loneliness. That's someone we're going to talk about. Yeah, at definitely. Some point. Yeah, and Gertrude Stein, of course. Yeah, I mean Gertrude Stein lived literally down the street from them. Yeah, she would have known her. Surely. Alice, I, well, this is. I mean, we don't have solid evidence that she knew Gertrude Stein, but they definitely socialized in the same circle. Yeah. So, at the beginning of the 1920s, they lived in the Left Bank near the Luxembourg Gardens. Like I said, this is where there's a lot of American expats. This is also that really robust intellectual and literary scene. In the Luxembourg Gardens, like apparently you could just walk through on any given day and find artists who had come to write and paint and relax and or just sitting in the cafes nearby, having a coffee, having a cigarette. Having a smashed avocado. That's right. You might run into Gertrude Stein or like Man Ray or Diego Rivera fucking anyone at any moment. So this is very close to the famous Shakespeare and Company bookstore, which is where writers such as Hemingway and Ezra Pound and James Joyce used to hang out. And it's also where the beginning of Before Sunset occurs. It is. That's unrelated. And I took a few arty photos of myself reading books in Shakespeare and Company, as we as we all do when that's, we go there's nothing wrong with that. to yeah. Paris. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Gertrude Stein and Alice Tolkis did live 
very, very close, like on the same street as they did. And Agnes and Cherry moved in art and lesbian circles that they were also moving in. And photographs put them in some of these really famous literary salons and lesbian gatherings. And so we don't know 100% for sure that they were like acquaintances, but there's a really good chance. The other thing that makes this more difficult is that, so as I said before, Agnes never really officially came out. But I mean, even in this very liberal scene, they were still quite discreet about their relationship. But I can imagine this is a real, I mean, this is the safest space that she can exist in as a lesbian at this time. And apparently there was a really strong sense of community and belonging and friendship amongst these circles in Paris. And she, by all accounts, felt very at home and very comfortable and had a really strong sense of her own identity in Paris. So I imagine that even though they probably weren't very public about their relationship, they were accepted and didn't feel threatened. And that's really important. And I wonder as well as if, if the fact that Cherry was repeatedly the subject of the paintings that she was exhibiting and yeah. you know presumably selling at the same time as well, if it wasn't already something that was kind of just suspected on the down low I reckon anyway. It must it's have like, been. wow, you keep painting this same woman okay. over and over <laughs> yeah. again. And How she interesting. Lives, she's and your you live with companion her. and yeah. you live together mm. and she divorced her husband to come and move to yeah. Paris. Come on. Yeah. Pretty sure that Gertrude Stein and Co. are yeah. not falling for that bullshit. Come Gertrude on. Stein and Co. Yeah, that's a great name. <laughs> I'm gonna open a bookstore. Yeah, but I was just thinking Paris and open it next door to Shakespeare. I'm gonna call it Stein and Co. Gertrude Stein and Co. So these salons and parties had a really important influence on the modern scene more generally, and are also reflected in all of those aspects of her work that we've already discussed. Those that focus on interior feminine space and femininity and androgyny and this image of the new woman, that confidence, all of that stuff, that's all happening here. So her story is actually relatively, it's it's a really positive story. Like there's no real tragedy that she had to overcome except for the fact that she, I guess until her mid thirties, wasn't really living her, her full best life, but she did get there in her forties and fifties when she got to Paris And the 20s were the most productive of her career. So this is when she's in her 50s. And this is when she produces the majority of her body of work, particularly her androgynous images and her images of cherry. And this is her most celebrated work as well. In 1926, she was the third Australian to be elected to the Salon National des Beaux-Arts. The other two were Rupert Bunny and Bessie Davidson. So this is a very important accolade. In 1927, Agnes came home to Australia for nine months and she was really well celebrated when she got home. So people knew who she was. This was the peak of her career. And she was exhibited at the Macquarie Galleries in Sydney and the Fine Arts Gallery in Melbourne. So she was really receiving recognition during her lifetime. She did receive recognition, like at the end of her life. But yes, she yeah. did. In 1938, four of her oils were shown at the 150th Celebratory Exhibition at the New South Wales National Art Gallery. Then she went back to Paris well, she remained for the rest of her life, which wasn't very long because she died in 1939. Oh, wow, you summed that up really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
So, I mean, she spent her last, really she, her so last year. She's quite years. young, though. She was 75 when she died, which is not that young. It's just that we skipped over, like, 15 years of her later life, her 70s and her 60s. I don't know what she did in that period except for come back to Australia for a little bit. And live happily with Cherry? She did. They did live happily together. Cherry was with her until her death, and Cherry herself died in 1950, and... They're buried in the same grave. Oh, really? In a cemetery just outside of Paris. Oh, They're buried together. That's awesome. That's a, isn't that a lovely That is a lovely, a lovely ending. What a lovely, happy. It's a proper love story, It I is, feel. without much tragedy along the way. I mean. It, Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, it's just like a good. celebrate. It's a good story about a woman who was an outsider, I guess, in her home life. Was closeted and yet she found her way. And she found her way because she had a lot of privilege. Yeah. Which, you know, you can't. I mean, it's not her fault that she had a rich dad who could afford. It's not my fault I had a rich dad. Yeah, but dad she still had to have the. Yes, exactly. But she but still like, had to have the talent and the ability to become right. an artist. That's right. She didn't. But, and if you look at her paintings, like, it's clear she has. That's right. It, her paintings are beautiful. They are. It's not like she bought her way no, into art. No, absolutely not. She didn't. She didn't like, at that's all. That's purely she, based on she skill. She worked her. Like, she trained for years and years. And she also came to prominence during a period of time when female artists were still not not taken very seriously she still had to compete to be exhibited yeah she would have had to work 10 times harder to be exhibited than any man did yeah and the fact that she was able to go to europe as an independent woman without a chaperone was so rare Mm. and really quite brave i think like her life is not as tragic as some of the other women that we've covered but i think that she's your life doesn't have to be tragic for you to have been amazing to to have been amazing or to have broken outside of the mold yeah that's right like if you break outside of the mold and make that work for you fuck yeah exactly and i think that she she made some beautiful art she had a terrific love story with cherry i wish that we knew more about their private life i mean their private lives are their private lives. That's I understand that. They didn't want to be public about their relationship. But I love that they were buried together. Like, yeah. I think that that shows. And she also, she left her estate to Cherry as well. And Cherry donated a lot of her works back to Australian galleries so that. Oh, which Australian galleries? Because if you're, if you're listening and you live in probably Sydney, I'm going to say Sydney. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of it's. In Sydney, there's also a lot in the Bendigo Art Gallery. There have been a few exhibitions of her work more recently. A few years ago, there was a retrospective of hers, I think, in Bendigo. So her art is around. So we can seek it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So go and seek it out. So that was a happy story Hmm. of two women who just went on and lived their lives. And it demonstrates to us how... Women cohabiting and perhaps being legally even allowed to marry, if that were the case, didn't destroy the fabric of society. Yeah, I mean, it's so weird. How amazing. Like Paris, like Paris is still there. Yeah. Nothing. Isn't it strange how. how, There was no apocalypse. No. There was no. There was no fiery. Brimstone. Yeah. Nothing happened. Despite all of those. Like lesbians existing in yeah. a city. Like women just loved each other 
and everything was and fun. Was, and they had a really lovely time and created some wonderful art. Yeah. And the world didn't end. Yeah. So how about in Australia, we just think about that. We let's just take that as a lesson yeah. for today. And like, I am just serious. Just, just seriously, just for a moment. For a moment. If you are in Australia, please don't boycott this vote. It um, won't help anybody. Won't, boycotts only work if the other people want you to participate in the thing. Yeah. The other side, they don't want you to participate. Yeah. If you boycott, you are playing into exactly what they want. So please, can we all gather we together? Yeah. We know it's shit and we know we shouldn't be doing and it. And it's a bunch of bullshit. And it's a bunch of bullshit. But please, can we just but let's be fucking, proactive If we're going to do it, let's fucking smash it. Let's throw. Let's smash it. What's the saying? I was going to say, let's throw this out of the ballpark. That's not it. Let's let's hit, hit this out of the ballpark. That's right. Please, Australia. And vote yes on mass. And let's on just mass. fucking do this thing. Yeah. Because if this is the only fucking option that we've got. <laughs> Uh, then all let's right. all agree that it's shit house, but let's fucking do it. Do anyway. it anyway. Yeah. All right, that's I us that's, being political. For that's just our for a message. <laughs> that's, that's our message for this for this episode. Yeah, I feel so. That's the take home. Yeah. for today. Yeah, fucking smash it, Australia. All right, good. If you're not in Australia, thanks for listening anyway. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for participating. You probably live in a country that already has equal marriage. Maybe. Yeah. And you know what? Your countries didn't crumble and die. So yeah. Anyway. But, you know, tweet us if the fabric of your society fell apart. We are at Deviant Women. <laughs> yeah. Or you can email us to let us know that the fabric of your society fell apart. Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> or you could support us on Patreon. But actually, you know what? Only do these things because the fabric of your societies didn't fall apart. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So obviously it's not what happened. But, um, yes, you can get on board at Patreon and support us. We That's would right. love we you We would for love that. you forever. We've got some more online-only content coming. We're going to be posting that monthly, we think. Yes. So, so if you some more blooper reels and also some um, special mini, mini episodes. episodes. If you want some more deviant women in your ear holes every month, then jump onto Patreon <laughs> for some mini apps. Just your ear holes. Just though. your ear holes. No other holes. <laughs> Only your ear holes. And please remember we've got our iTunes competition. So if you jump on iTunes, leave us a review. It really is the best way for the news of our podcast to help... To reach the world. Reach the world. And also, the thing about this competition, let me drive this home to you people, is that this competition is not like en masse huge thousands and thousands of people that you'll be up against, just so you know. Like your chances of winning... Are quite high. Are pretty high. <laughs> So, so lonely and sad. <laughs> but seriously, though, like you've got really good odds. That's so true. you may as well just go and leave a review. Yes. And thank you to those of you who already have. Everyone who's already left a review, you are all already in the draw. That's right. Last thing is if you would like to buy some merch but don't want to have to risk your chances with the competition, even though you should anyway. Because they're not much chance. Like, the chances are pretty good. But you can buy some merch at our Etsy store. We've got T-shirts and pins, and we want to send them to you. Yep, and you can find all of the links and information for any of these sorts of things on our blog site. DeviantWomenPodcast.com And so I think that that probably brings us to the end of another very fascinating trip through history that's right so thank you once again 
as always to Brendan Davies for the sound and to India Hui for the music. Who we probably should have asked to write the jingle from the, for the beginning because it would have been better <laughs> than the jingle <laughs> we came up time. with. But next fortnight, I think we may find ourselves in a similar period of history. Oh. Yet again. Oh dear. We but do like the late Victorian. We do. Early 20th century. Because there's so much there that we can unpack. It's very yeah. exciting. So, maybe, actually, you know what? That's all I'll give you. All right. That's all I'll give you. Sounds good. For, for hints and clues. So join us next time. Thank you very much. And that's all from us. We'll see you next time. Bye.